On today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, I'm going to be talking to you about stories. I've talked to you about stories before, remember? But now I'm telling you some other stories. So this is completely different. What are you looking at me like that for? It's going to be fun. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Hi, and welcome back to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Today's episode will be coming to you at a slightly slower speed, hopefully. I'm officially on vacation. I'm recording this at a beach house with my wife's extended family, family and extended family, um, at Bethany Beach, Delaware. Not that that necessarily means anything to you, but maybe it does. But it's a... it's a week off, but I decided I would just record this podcast because I like recording these podcasts, and uh, hopefully you like listening to them as well. I was moved by responses I had from the people that uh, listened to the podcast a few months ago, episodes ago, depending on how you're tracking these things, about stories and stories that I use in coaching. And I thought I would revisit that subject today. Because it is a subject that I think is very, very useful. The, the use of stories, use of, of anecdotes and metaphors and, and coaching of various kinds. Very, very useful. And funnily enough, let me tell you a quick story. <laughs> One of the absolutely worst, worst seminar experiences I ever had, you know, at myself doing a seminar, delivering a seminar, was uh, a number of years ago, thank God. It was a long time ago, hopefully receding into a distant memory someday. But um, it was a long time ago. It was very, very painful, very difficult situation because um, back in the early days of NLP, when I was first learning NLP from Tony Robbins and a few other people, so I think by then, this time, I'd actually gotten my master practitioner training from Robert Diltz and I'd taken other classes from other people like, you know, Tad James and Wide Wood Small and Dave Dobson, et cetera. So I knew my way around the barn pretty good. But um, nevertheless, NLP was primarily used for therapy. You know, we used, used to call them NLP therapies. We'd do an NLP therapy session. Um, so we called them. We didn't use the term coaching at all. And it wasn't used for business. NLP was a therapy thing. It wasn't a business application. It was beginning at this point in time to be used for business, but very sparingly. So it was kind of a new thing. And this guy asked me to come and I will try to be as circumspect as possible to, um, I believe it was in New Jersey, let's put it that way, and uh, deliver a NLP application seminar for, for business. And I thought, sure, I could totally do that. And I prepared and I got all these collected stories together. <laughs> I was going to use me teaching the, the things that I was going to be teaching. And when I got there, there are a number of strikes against me from the get-go. Generally speaking, when I've done seminars, uh, I have done them in what's known as theater style. So the people, uh, there's a, maybe a little stage set up in the front and a podium perhaps. 
but um, people are sitting in rows. You know, there's there's just chair after chair after chair, and what's known as theater style seating. Um, this was not that. This was I don't know exactly what it's called, seminar style, classroom classroom style, probably. Everybody had a table. Everyone in the room was sitting behind a table that was usually um, for two to three people each, and then there'd be another table and then two, three people and another table, two, three people. And it stretched back as far as I could see. It felt like this, you know, like an airplane hangar or something. It was just like, hello, back there. Barely could see the people in the background. And of course, everybody was insulated against any sort of contact with me. They could be in their own little worlds. And I was way at the front on this little stage and they had a couple of whiteboards and uh, markers set up for me. And, and the real kicker was that before this thing even started, before I walked out on the stage, and just before I walked out on the stage, the guy who was organizing the event took me aside and said, now listen, these are serious business people. They want solid, meaty stuff. They don't want to hear a bunch of stories like the way Tony Robbins does all his seminars. And of course, that was basically taking the rug right under my feet because that's all I got. That's all I had. You know, had some some techniques, yes, but it's mostly stories that you know serve to show how this these techniques worked and could be employed. But he was like, no stories, adamant about it. Suffice it to say, I'm just going to make a long story short because this is a very painful episode in my life. It was a disaster. I tried to teach. These, uh, these techniques without any stories to, you know, sort of illustrate how they worked. And they just didn't, they just didn't work. Plus the markers that he'd given me to use on these whiteboards were permanent markers, not dry erase markers. So that by the time I was trying to pick up some steam and stuff, it was like, psh, I couldn't erase what had been previously written on the board. Uh, it was terrible, but don't do that. Don't do what I did. Use Stories. Stories are vital. The stories are the way the brain works. We remember stories. This has been true as long as there have been people. As long as there has been people, there have been stories that have been told around, you know, campfires, etc. They're the things that teach us valuable life lessons, you know, how, how to live life as a good person, or et cetera, et cetera. Stories do that. And they stick with us. They stick in our minds and we remember the stories. Hopefully you remember that story and um, you can keep the lesson without having to have the painful experience that uh, it was for me in reality. So stories. Now I, I've written, written a book recently about storytelling and in the book that I read, I wrote, I'm primarily talking about stories that are useful for storytelling, uh, like in the moth or, other things like that, story for fun. But you can use them for business. You can use them for other things as well. They illustrate certain points. Now, one of the things that's true about stories like that are told in the moth is that they are of necessity true stories. You're supposed to tell true stories. And in the book that I have just finished writing about telling stories, I actually removed somebody from the book that had been in the original draft, a man named Mike Daisy. Because Mike, uh, although he didn't necessarily, you know, tell his stories in a moth, he told stories in theaters, um, he, he made it out to be that his stories were true. All of them, you know, 
factual recounting of things. Now, of course, you never just factually recount something that's like a news story. You don't just fact, you know, do the first this happened, this happened. Stories are not like that. Stories you embellish, stories you, you stretch out certain things. You, you leave out other incidental materials that aren't important. You make a story worth listening to. That's one of the natures of the beast of stories. But he just made up stuff out of whole cloth. And so when this was discovered, and by the way, he, he was very big. Mike Daisy was, was big in the, in the storytelling world. He was doing Broadway, I mean, literally Broadway shows. That's where I saw him. It was off Broadway perhaps, but it was still, you know, big theaters. Lots of people seeing just this one guy sitting on a table with a microphone and a glass of water in front of him. That was it. That's the stage. Um, he was very good at telling the stories, but his stories were also featured on, on radio shows. Um, NPR had him on there. And so when they discovered like this American life, I think it was, and when they discovered that the stories he'd been telling, or at least this one big story he'd been telling was largely fabricated, they did not like that. And they, you know, <laughs> withdraw, withdrew the support. He lost his engagement on these Broadway shows. You know, it was a big disaster for him. Uh, it, he's still not recovered as far as I know his, his career, at least from that experience. If you tell you that, tell people that your story is true, it needs to be true. Like I said, it doesn't have to be factual. First this, then that, then this with every, every single fact, you know, recounted. You can stretch things. You can embellish things. You can leave things out that aren't important to the narrative, but they still, generally speaking, have to be true. It has to have happened to you. And generally speaking, that way. Um, now when you're doing therapy, when you're doing coaching, this is not a moth broadcast, right? You don't have to have those same rules. It's useful if it's true, I think. Why not? Couldn't hurt. And the point really more is that the message that you get across to the person you're trying to influence. One of my teachers, Richard Bandler, was fairly famous for telling pretty outlandish Stories. They were really great stories and very effective stories. And the story I'm about to tell you is secondhand. I'm telling you the truth of what I heard, but I don't know for a fact that it's completely true. I think that it is. You be the judge. But it's an interesting story, I think. Um, I was studying with a guy named Dave Dobson. Dr. Dave Dobson passed away a few years ago, but he was a great hypnotherapist. He was also very influential in the NLP world in the early days of NLP, but uh, not an NLP or himself, but um, nevertheless in that world. And as he tells the story, he had been doing a presentation about some of his work with burn victims using hypnosis with burn patients and um, working these words to help, you know, mitigate their pain. And Richard was, Richard Bandler was listening to these stories by Dobson. And, uh, they're apparently very good stories because, uh, I'm not sure if it was the next day or soon thereafter. Uh, Dave said that he was in a seminar with Richard and Richard started telling stories about how he'd been working with burn victims and working in hospitals to mitigate their pain using hypnosis. And, Dave thought those stories sounded kind of familiar. Now, Dave did not disrupt the seminar that Richard was 
conducting at that point. Uh, seminars were being used, the, the, the stories were being used for a good reason within that seminar. People were getting good lessons from the stories. But according to Dave later on, he uh, talked to Richard privately. <laughs> and I can only imagine, but because um, I know both these guys. But according to Dave, what he said is basically, God damn it, Richard, if you want some experience, go get some. In uh, no uncertain terms. And, and the effect that that story, when Dave Dobson told that story to our seminar of people learning from him in a fun shop and other than conscious communication fun shop, effect on us, him telling us that story was, um, for me to want to go out and get some experience of my own. So that's one of the reasons I volunteered for years at a hospital in uh, New York. It's called Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. I volunteered to be in this department. It's called the Department of Complementary Medicine, where we would offer hypnosis and other services to patients in the heart, uh, thoracic surgery wing. The department, they were going to be getting heart transplants or heart bypass surgeries or valve replacements. And I would do pre-surgical hypnosis with them. So I worked in a hospital for a good six years, you know, really putting, you know, my mouth where my money was, if you will. During that period of time, I also uh, had to have an operation of my own. This is, again, just for the record, a true story. Um I was running marathons, and one day I was running from my apartment in Park Slope, Brooklyn, to um, Coney Island, Brooklyn, way off about 10 miles away, and then turned around and came back. So I was doing about a 20-mile run that day, I was working towards the New York City Marathon. Came back home, got in the shower, and noticed this very odd bulge in my abdomen that had not been there before. And it was quite pronounced and quite weird looking. So um felt a little bit like I was going to end up an alien popping out of there if I was in that movie. I'm glad I wasn't. And it didn't happen like that. But I did go to the doctor in the neighborhood and he said, okay, well, you got uh, two choices. I said, oh, cool. Good. As I don't want to have surgery, if I can, I'd like to you know, do some yoga or some meditation or something, you know, to you know, cure this thing. So, okay, well, you got... You got basically two choices. He said, you could have surgery now, I said, or you could have surgery later. I said, oh, wow, thanks, doc. That's a, that's a great choice. And by the way, don't quit your day job. It <laughs> ain't funny. It didn't strike me as funny at the time. It was kind of funny, actually. But anyway, I decided as long as I had to have the surgery, I might as well make it interesting. So I found a... Um, a doctor. This is a long story. I'm going to make very short right here. I'm just going to say I found a doctor who was willing to do the surgery um, without using any anesthesia. So I was just going to use hypnosis for the anesthesia part of the surgery. And so, um, as you can tell, imagine it would be not every doctor would want to do that. So, and certainly not every anesthesiologist in every hospital would want to say, okay, yeah, you go ahead. I'll just uh, sit over here in the corner. Apparently they, they kind of like to get paid for doing their job. Go figure. But it did happen. It did happen. And I finally did. I'm going to make a long story very, very short here. 
um, I did manage to go through this thing and have a successful hernia operation without using any anesthesia. Also, within that process, I also gave myself suggestions because I was listening basically to a tape that I'd made. Um, so I was using some of the suggestions that I often give to the heart patients that I've been working with in the hospital. It's saying that there would be minimal bleeding in the operation. I told myself, as I had told many people, that there would be minimal bleeding in this operation and that it would be enough to keep the wounds clean. And um, one of the things that the surgeon told me afterwards, and she said she was astonished that this had happened. I was like, yeah, of course. But she was astonished that it had taken place. Um, one of the things that she was most impressed by was that there was such little bleeding. It, usually this is a relatively bloody operation. And so they go through several of these absorbent pads that, uh, you know, are on top of the, the operating table. And they usually go to, through two, three or four of these things. And mine, they only used the one that was already there and it actually didn't get any blood on it. It was just because I was using it that they had to throw it away. Otherwise it was pretty, pretty intact. So hypnosis really does work. So the the use for telling that story is multifold. It depends on what specific um, suggestion I want to give to my client for whatever particular reason that I might emphasize certain things. As an example, there was a section within this episode where I had to make a decision, where I had to make a decision. So I can talk about how I go about that process of decision-making, you know, to step into my best self state and then ask myself, can I do A or can I do B and stay in my best state? And it automatically gets certain responses from my body other than consciously. And as long as I know what those responses are, then I can make a very congruent decision. It's a great process to do. It's a good story to be able to tell. So these are all examples of true stories that I can use in a variety of fashions, depending on what the point is that I want to be able to make. So do your stories have to be true? Not really. And if you can find stories that are true, so much the better, because you can always tailor them to fit your particular needs. Now, Milton Erickson, as you probably are well aware, Milton Erickson, famous for what we now call Ericksonian hypnosis. Milton Erickson was very famous for his storytelling. And when people hear that, they generally speaking assume that the stories he would tell would be stories like, once upon a time, there was a prince who lived in a castle and he was visited by three ghosts and whatever, you know, story sort of fairy tales or a princess who went to battle for her kingdom, or whatever. There's a fairy tale sort of situation. Erickson's stories were not like that. Erickson's stories were stories from his childhood. You know, like as he was slopping out the stalls in the farm that he grew up on, or, you know, how he learned to walk again or talk again after having polio. Um, these sorts of stories. Later in his life, his stories were often started by saying a phrase like, I had a client once who... And then he'd tell a story about a previous client that he'd had. Now, question in my mind was, are those stories true? 
these stories that Erickson would tell. And I honestly do not know if those stories were true. Many of the stories could be corroborated by Erickson's own papers. He wrote a hundred or more papers that were published, the collected works of Erickson. You can look things up if you want to. Um, but there's so many there, you got to figure they probably are, are true stories. He worked with a lot of clients over the years and had a lot of interesting stories to tell. So odds are good. Odds are good. And if you worked hard enough, you could probably probably cross-reference the stories that he was telling with those case studies. I have never done that. I will tell you the truth right now. It didn't seem all that necessary. But you can. You can do that. There are wonderful lots of stories that are useful, whether or not they're true. But just the point is, if you tell people they're true, they should be at least pretty darn close to true. Or if you tell people that you did something, it might be good if you actually had done that thing that you're claiming to have done. If the story will be just as effective. If I, if you said, like in the previous example, if Richard Brown had said, well, you know, Dave Dobson would go into the hospital and he'd tell these stories, it'd be just as effective. It would really would be. But I will admit to you one thing that one thing I, I do do from time to time, but it's not necessarily True. I will do a Richard Bandler from time to time, and I will tell stories, um, very short stories, maybe more anecdotal type things, and attribute quotes to people that didn't necessarily say them. Quotes are a great way to, to give advice. So, for instance, if, if I said to you, oh, wow, yeah, I hear what you're saying. You know, Abraham Lincoln once said, do, 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 and then give a piece of advice coming from the words of the mouth of Abraham Lincoln. That's great. You know, it's a great way to give that advice without it having to be quite as confrontational. Like Winston Churchill once said, and this is, this is true. Um, Winston Churchill once said, if you find yourself going through hell, keep going. That's an actual quote by Winston Churchill. Um, Thomas Edison, you've heard of him. He invented the light bulb. Uh, at least gets credit for it. Um, he said, many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Good advice. Good advice that you can impart to your clients by telling them that Thomas Anderson said this. Another way you can do that, however, is you can use it as a situation where you're telling a story and someone gives you advice in your story. Like, for instance, if I said I was a kid, and um, let's say that I was playing out in the in the street with all my neighborhood friends, you know, and we were playing kickball, and uh, I got hit. Let's just start making this up. If I got hit in the face by a, a hardly a hard kicked ball that my next door neighbor Jimmy had kicked, and it hit me in the face, and and I. You know, was so upset that I hurt so much, but I was also I, was, I didn't want to cry in front of all these other kids. So I ran into my house and was crying, and, and uh, didn't cry until I got in the house. And then my grandmother held me and said something like, "My grandmother said, do 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 do." Right. So I'm making the story up. I could I could put whatever words I want to in my grandmother's mouth at this point. Right. So. At this point in time, I can now say, my grandmother said to me, Doug, you should do this. And from the point after the word Doug, 
when I say you, my listener is going to hear the word you. And maybe if I'm, you know, live and in person, they might see me looking in their eyes and pointing to them and saying, you are strong and capable of doing anything. It's okay to cry when you're hurt. Every time you get knocked down, you just get back up again. So that way of doing a quote, you know, attributed to my grandmother, where my in the story, my grandmother is talking to me, and she said to me, Doug, when you need to cry, and now she, seems, she is using the word you, but me as the storyteller, I'm saying the word you, and I'm talking to my client, and then I'm pointing maybe at my client, and maybe I'm looking in my client's eyes when I say you get back up again, you know, that's advice now directly to my client, but it's being heard as if it's coming from my grandmother to me. So therefore it's less guarded, right? So the person will accept it more and think, wow, that's really good advice that you get. That's really, that's true, isn't it? When you you get knocked down, you get back up again, right? They're going to go through this in their head. They will accept that advice very readily through this use of quotes. So quotes are great. We call them an Ericksonian language pattern that you can use from Milton Erickson that you can use to impart wisdom. Quoting Milton Erickson, quoting Thomas Jefferson, quoting Abraham Lincoln, quoting your grandmother. True or not, better if they're true, doesn't really matter, especially if it's you know somebody like your grandmother they can't do the double check on. But you want the advice to be certainly good advice in those cases, don't you? So I'm going to keep this relatively short on this uh, vacation episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Hopefully I've been talking too fast. Um, I just want to leave you with, with one more quick little story. And forgive me, I don't know sometimes if I've told you these stories before or not. I may have. I tell a story a lot. There's an uh, artist, a painter, by the name of Chuck, Chuck Close. Chuck Close is his name. And Chuck Close, I first heard of a long time ago, back in the 60s. He was uh, famous even then. He's one of those rare artists who has been extremely successful while alive. You know, a lot of times people like Van Gogh, most famously perhaps, um, was a pauper during his lifetime. And now his paintings are worth, you know, millions of dollars each. But he never saw any of that. Um, Chuck Close is doing very well for himself. Thank you financially he's he's done very very well the first time i ever saw a painting of his i was walking to the museum of modern art in new york city and across this big entrance entrance way there is this photograph i was sure of a guy named philip glass who's a classical uh, modern composer contemporary composer he's still alive uh, he's written things like uh, einstein on the beach things like that i was a composition major in, at my in my in my college. So I, I, uh, I knew who that was. And I saw his face and go, wow, there's a, pa- a photograph of Philip Glass over there. What's up with that? So I walked closer to this thing. When I got right up close to it, I realized it was not a photograph. It was a painting. It was a photorealism painting of Philip Glass. He was 25 feet big, his face was, on this painting. Um, black and white, so it was, uh, you know, different shades of gray. But boy, amazing, amazing painting. And Chuck Close was famous for these sorts of portraits. Um, he's done a lot of them. 
But as time went on, Chuck started having physical challenges. And it turned out he has some sort of degenerative disease. And uh, these days, if you were to walk into the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, if you were to see one of his current paintings, you might look across a grand hallway of many hundreds of feet and see a, a similarly sized paintings, perhaps even of Philip Glass again, um, in color, no doubt, these days. But a bit much more impressionistic looking, definitely a painting from a distance, but you could tell very easily, very clearly, it's a very nice painting of Philip Glass. But then as you walk across this large entranceway towards it and get closer and closer to it, it looks less and less like Philip Glass. It looks more and more like a collection of globular blobs of paint on a canvas. When you get up right close to it, it's indecipherable as a, as a face. It's just a lot of different colored blobs on the canvas. Part of the reason that's true is that Chuck can't hold the paintbrush with his fingers anymore. He has no mobility like that. He can't do that same kind of work that he used to do. But he does paint still. And he will go to his studio every day. I assume it's every day. I, may, I might be wrong about that. But he goes to his studio when he goes to his studio in a wheelchair, one of those motorized wheelchairs. And he gets there and his assistants help him get set up and they Velcro a paintbrush to his hand because he can't control it with his own fingers. So it's literally strapped onto his hand. And he takes these globs of paint and applies them to the canvas. Canvas that has been pre-divided into quadrants so he can tell where the globs are supposed to go. He's got it set up on a computer that he's done and you know, so he knows exactly what color goes where into what quadrant, etc. But he does it. He does it all. And uh, he's interesting because he says, you know, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us show up and get to work. Now, I tell that story a lot to my coaching clients because a lot of times people will come to me from a, a Tony Robbins workshop or something like that, and they feel like they've got to get into a peak state in order to take massive action to do these big things. It's like, yeah, no, you know, I mean, you can't. Sure, go ahead, do that. And maybe you could just, you know, get to work. Just show up and get to work. Just, you know, have a plan. Execute the plan. <laughs> you know, show up, get to work. Inspirations for amateurs. When you get really good, when you know what you're doing, just do it. Just get started. Just have a plan. Say, I'm going to start by 9 o'clock and go do it. I might have told you that story when I was talking about Henrik Gibson. I remember telling you about Henrik Gibson weeks past. I might have told you about Chuck Close, too. Forgive me if I did. If I did and you didn't you know, stop the tape already, that's, that's on you. <laughs> but I apologize. I, I will review and make sure I have only fresh stories next time I bring up the subject. But until then, thank you for tuning in today and hope you had a good time. Be well. This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks. Thanks.